Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rouleur interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at rouleur.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Rouleur and this is Rouleur Conversations. I'm back after a short mid-season break, and thank you to Rachel Jarry for covering the pod in my absence. We're going to be talking about the latest World Tour racing, but mainly about the new edition of Rouleur, number 122, the travel edition, which is dropping with subscribers this week. In fact, you can go and subscribe now at rouleur.cc slash subscribe, enter the code PODCAST15, and you'll get a 15% discount. I'm joined by James Start recently back from the Canadian World Tour races. James, how are you? Good, a little jet lag. Canada was great. It always is. I've done every one of the uh, Canadian Grand Prix since they started in 2010. And it's just a really special time in the year. The fans are so happy to welcome cyclists from around the world. The organization rolls out the red carpet. It's one of the best organized races. They always have a great list of riders. And everybody's pretty mellow. I mean, we're all, you know... We, we often say that cycling is like the big family, but it's a family with a lot of bubbles. And often we're kind of coexisting, you know, the journalists are over here and the team buses are here. And in this race, we're all together. We're all staying in the same hotels. We've taken the same airplanes over. We spend the week together. So it's much more relaxed. You can chat with the riders more easily really get inside. It's really wonderful. Urban circuits, uh, flavor of the moment in cycling after the Glasgow Worlds. But the GP de Quebec and GP Montreal have been doing this for well forever haven't they both in the current iterations of the race and then and the montreal's been the host of an old world cup race it there was the gp des Amériques in the i think the 1980s maybe early 1990s and they've been doing this from the beginning haven't they they have montreal has been awarded the 2025 world championships so we'll be going there for the worlds in a couple of years and don't forget in 1974 the world championships came to montreal it was like the first time that north america really got a taste of what the elite creme de la creme of uh, European racing was all about. Let's be fair, th- these circuits were not like the Glasgow circuit. There was no 40 or 50 turns on each one at all. But they are circuit races and they are different. And I think Michael Matthews, actually, who's won both of the races, and he got uh, second or third, uh, third, I think it was, in Quebec, said, you know what, I really respond to circuit races because you each lap get a better sense of the course, where to attack, but also... Each lap, the intensity mounts. The intensity mounts in the peloton, and the intensity mounts with the crowds. And he really responds to that, and that's the beauty of circuit racing. And and these are some of the best in the world by far. In the past, North American races have historically had issues with longevity. Races tend to pop up, thrive for a short amount of time, and then kind of peter out. And thinking of you know, there's the Tour de Georgia, Tour California, etc. These two races, on the other hand, seem to have found a niche now how can you explain that well i think uh that's a good point it really comes down to the the quality they got world tour status right away two races with world tour status which already made it more interesting for teams to come over because there's lots of points to be won there and then the welcoming and the organization is just so over the top it's so good i mean back in the day we had a private train that took us between quebec and montreal we had a chartered jet that brought us over. It was amazing. And all that was set up by Serge Arsenault. And he, uh, he just loves cycling and put his heart and soul in. He's the one who uh, organized the Grand Prix des Amériques and brought this back. Immediate, you know, big success. Riders love it. 
so they've already got the tradition built now. People want to come here. Um, it's not a consolation race in any way, shape, or form. Usually, it's a really great prep for the Worlds. This year was a little bit different because Worlds were exceptionally held uh, in August. So it, it's a key, a wonderful group of, of warm-up races for the Worlds, and hence also attracts a great field. They got the World Championships in a couple of years here, so that's going to give them you know, another three years of focus. I don't really see any reason why uh, it, it won't continue. Um, they're a fixture in the calendar now. The riders just, there's no hesitation. The riders love to race it. And Montreal's a destination as well, isn't it? It's a world city. It's, it's a place where many, many tourists go. It's cosmopolitan. It's culturally interesting. I guess that's a that's also a draw, isn't it? Especially for somebody like you, James. <laughs> yes. Well, Quebec is a very historical city, and the circuit is just gorgeous going through the old town and looping around the city. It's a really pretty circuit. And this is where uh, the British fought the French on the Plains of Abraham. And this is at the famous Chateau de Frontenac, which is the big hotel that overlooks the uh, St. Lawrence River, is where Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt signed their accord to, to go into World War II together. So, I mean, a lot of history in Quebec itself. But it's a much smaller city, a much quainter city. My heart's in Montreal because it's just a big, wonderful melting pot of European culture, French culture, American culture. The language is a sort of funky Creole of the North, you know, the Quebecois. And there's just such a, a mix. Uh, the, the architecture and the streets look much like an American city, and yet they're speaking French, and there are some very uh, European habits that are, are there too. So I just find it a fascinating city, and would just love to be able to go back and hang out. We always have a day or two, a day like Monday yesterday, to uh, walk around a little bit, and we went up to, as usual, to to the neighborhood where they have all the street art and the, the record stores and stuff. It's a great neighborhood. Ate at Schwartz's, the famous deli with its corned beef sandwiches. I mean, it's just, it's a city with a lot of soul and it's it's a great place. We're going to cover the Vuelta very, very briefly. We're going to save the main Vuelta chat for next week, I think, James, once the race is done. Mainly because during my break uh, from work, I took my break so seriously. I didn't really watch much of the Vuelta at all. I was kind of vaguely aware of how things are panning out, but I... I'm now doing that thing where, you, where I'm watching the stages as they unfold live every day, but I'm also watching the opening stages. So I'm up to stage, I think, 16 or 17 and stage five at the same time. And I basically picked the race up on the day that Jumbo Visma took top three on the Col du Tourmalet and <laughs> effectively, well... The race isn't over yet, but effectively started really dominating the race. So we'll just cover a few things very, very briefly. James, how excited are you at the Vuelta so far? Well, you know, I'm an American. And uh, if you're an American cycling fan, it's hard not to like Sepp Kuss. He's such a wonderful guy. He's such a, a beautiful rider, such a generous rider that all I can say is I, I hope that he wins this race. I hope that his teammates will start attacking him or something because he deserves to win it. And how great would it be? To have, you know, this Jumbovism, the first team to win all three Grand Tours in the same year with three different riders. It really couldn't happen to a nicer guy. He would be such a great winner. So I'm I'm really hoping he holds out. And I don't really see why he, he can't. I mean, Remco it was the big threat. And I don't see anybody else in the field that can blow the race apart. Um, so I don't, 
really see, like going into this last week, why he won't win the, the, the Vuelta. It would really be amazing. I think I think cycling fans around the world would be really, really happy to see Sepquist win this Vuelta. Yeah, agreed. Real hostages to fortune here, James, because we're recording on Tuesday. The podcast will be drop around the time of the Angaroo stage, so everything could change as the podcast is released. But agreed. As far as Sepkus goes, I've always been slightly frustrated at his career just because, you know, when he, he climbs so beautifully, he's consistently been one of the three or four best climbers in the world in so many Grand Tours. And he's he's always just been in a domestique role. So it's quite it's quite nice to see him leading a race. And, it, you know, through happenstance as well as strength, but that's how bike racing works. And beautiful, beautiful pedalling style, which I find mesmerising. Um, also... What I like about this Vuelta is, is the nerd stuff as well. I like the fact that as it stands with Kuss in red, it's possible that the Vuelta podium will be the winner of this year's Giro, the winner of this year's Tour and the winner of this year's Vuelta all on the podium. And I mentioned this in my book about the Tour de France years back, James, but the only time this has ever happened before was in the Tour de France in 1989, where we had the winner of the Vuelta, Pedro Delgado, the winner of the Giro, Laurent Fignon, and the winner of the Tour, Greg LeMond, on the final Tour podium, which is the final Grand Tour of the year. Since World War II, which is really the only relevant period here, only one team has ever finished 1-2-3 in a Grand Tour, which is Cass in 1966, and I mean, different race, different context, the Vuelta was not a Grand Tour in the modern understanding of the world, but you know that one, two, three is historically the only one in one of those three big races in the same year. And also, we've been talking about this since the start, of the or since the Giro, James, that Jumbo Visma winning all three Grand Tours in the year it would be an which I think they're going to do. Whether it's Kuss, Roglic, or Vingo, I think that's pretty much set. I'm not sensing that the cycling world has really picked up enough on this. I think it, you know, it's an unprecedented achievement, very, very difficult in the modern era and they look pretty set fair to do it so as far as race intrigue and suspense goes i don't think it's on fire at the moment that could change from a nerd's point of view james fantastic from uh, those are all yeah you pulled out some some tremendous factoids there uh kudos for that but uh yeah from historical point of view this is going to really go down as this is history making, and we'll you know we'll see uh, how it plays out in this this next week. They're really dominating on all all the Grand Tours, and it's it's just really it's really impressive. Very good at pedaling their bikes. By this time next week, James, I will have watched uh, not only the last week's stages but stages uh, five onwards. But the main event this week is not the Vuelta nor the GP de Montréal, but the launch of Rulo One Hundred Twenty Two, uh, the travel edition, and. I guess you could say that every edition of Ruler is a travel edition because for me, cycling is all about traveling. Obviously, bikes get us from A to B physically. Every bike ride is also a psychological journey or a metaphorical journey. When I first got into bike racing, part of the appeal as a British fan was the exotic foreignness of it all. I've always been interested in other cultures. And I used to buy an old magazine called Winning Magazine which is a sports mag, but for me as well, it's it's kind of a travel mag as well. It taught me about the geography of Europe, about the regions of different countries in Europe. And for me, that was as fascinating as the racing itself. And I was lucky enough to become a cycling journalist. And for me, one of the two or three main appeals of being a cycling journalist, I think, has always been the, the travel. And James, you've been following the sport for decades, much longer than me. And I get the sense that you also love the travel that's involved in 
covering this sport? Well, I don't necessarily love the travel, but I sure like getting to all these cool places. Um, getting there and back can, can be a little exhausting as I'm getting over jet lag as we speak. I've started the, the last few seasons in Argentina. I finish off in, some, in Canada or something like this and and all the races in between. The sport has taken me to places I never ever could have imagined going to. That's one of the benefits, but also one of the beautiful things about this the sport. And you see it, you know, we, we call the, the France, they call the, they said it's not just the Tour de France, but the Tour de la France. Not, it's not just the Tour de France, but it's the Tour of France. And the Tour of France shows off all the, the beautiful wonders of this country, the rich variety of geography and, and this and that. And those, you know, those pages of winning, which I also saw, inspired me. They still inspire my picture taking because, yes, there was always a sense of where are you? We're not in a stadium. We are someplace in the world, someplace beautiful, maybe exotic. And those places are provide a constant stage for this uh, this sport and and a rich ever-changing stage i love that and then every day um, we take go for a bike ride is a journey and um and and on a much smaller scale i love those moments as well the magazine is so hot off the press we actually don't have our physical copies yet so james and i are gonna gonna page leaf through our pdfs of ruler 122 it's, it's dropping this week with subscribers i think that the, the mags have already been posted you should be getting them this week if you're a subscriber if you're not a subscriber yet please subscribe at ruler.cc slash subscribe so first feature in the magazine I, I placed this feature first because i felt it expressed a lot of the subjects and themes you wanted to cover in this magazine it's a, a, a feature called the road and it's by the cycling journalist Richard Abraham with illustrations by or photography by the the Grubers, uh, Jared and Ashley Gruber. So what's the road about? I mean, Richard sent me a pitch for this earlier in the year, quite quite a while ago, actually. But I, I immediately knew this was going to be one of the features in the travel bag. And he said, so, Ed, there is this road and it's amazing. And he kind of pitched it as a cycling equivalent of the beach which is a novel that was popular around the turn of the century by Alex Garland, uh, which is about backpacking in in Thailand. It was about a perfect, mysterious beach that was a secret and no one knew where it was and the, the location was passed passed along through word of mouth. Um, obviously, in the novel, bad things happen. We don't need, to, don't need to worry too much about that. The concept of the beach is what's important here. And Richard had the concept of the road. It's a real road, James. It exists. Um, Richard didn't want to say where it was. Reading between the lines, you can probably make a fairly good stab. But the point of this feature was to talk about this ideal, perfect experience of riding, which Richard himself finds on this stretch of road. It's a kind of a middle mountain context. It's not super high. It's not the highest road. It's not the toughest. It's not the steepest. It's a scenic road. The photography shows us that. But it's really what the piece is about is the experience of traveling by bike. And to me, James, this is what I love about editing a magazine. When pieces like this come in, when the when the idea is great, Richard's a fantastic writer as well. So you know the words are going to be great. They were. And we had Jared and Ashley's pictures to run with it. and. The whole thing was, to my mind, just perfect magazine feature. Yeah, it's um, I mean, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good team between Richard and the Groovers. That's a winning combination right there. The words are tremendous, as are the pictures, and it just makes you want to go out and find a a cool road that 
you can make your own for a couple of hours. And that's what I, I get a sense of here. And um, that's what's so inspiring about this piece. Yeah, and I love the way Richard describes it. The opening is, is I'll just read, read the first paragraph out because it's, it's, it's so perfect. It just draws you in, goes like this. There is a road in a mountain range, real perfection. You've never known a road like it, a road that could have been made for cycling. You'll find it in a famous European mountain range, but you could spend months exploring and never find it. It's hidden away, totally secret. That's part of the beauty of this road. And it's not some half-forgotten gravel track either. This is a real road, 100% asphalt, perfect for road cycling. Two things. First, I want to find this road and I want to ride this road. But the other thing is, it doesn't matter if I don't, because the other point of this feature is that we each have our own roads. We, we can find experiences like this, not necessarily on this particular road, but on other roads. And it reminded me about what I get from cycling, which is that sense of not just physical journey, but a journey, a psychological journey as well. I live in Paris and I can be out of it. In two and a half hours, a three hour ride, I can be on single lane farm roads and come back to the city and feel like I've been to another place another place in time and a whole nother place. And it, it's, it, it's so, it's so invigorating. And I feel like my day is, is complete that I've really done something. I really accomplished something. And I have a few of those roads around France um, that I, you know, when anytime I'm around there, I want to ride up that road because they're just special places. What's your favorite road to ride on, James? <laughs> I thought that was coming. I don't know why. Can I have more than one or no? Yeah, why not? The most spectacular road that I have found in France is a road that goes between La Ciotat and Cassis, or actually the best way to do it is between La Cassis and La Ciotat. So it's just a couple of kilometers, you know, about 10, 15 Ks, 20 Ks out of Marseille. I don't know quite how I discovered it. I think I was vacationing down there once and I came across this road and I saw it on the map. I said, where is that? It goes, it just edges over the cliffs of the Mediterranean. I said, it's gotta be something. But to get there is something else because you come out of Cassis, which is this you know very picture postcard uh, little fishing village, and about one kilometer out, it turns to the right, and you go up. And when I say you go up, it's like 20, 25% for two or three kilometers. At one point, my bike computer got so confused, it said it was like 49% pitch. And I was going a total of four kilometers an hour. It was just everything I could do to stay on that bike. But then you get past that point and it breaks out of the tree line and you're on this very narrow road that just laces its way over the cliffs of the Mediterranean. And it's one of the most spectacular roads I know of. And it's one of my favorite rides. But it's so brutally hard to get there. Uh, it's not something I can do very often. Then there's a town down in, in the south of France that I really love. It's a little fishing village called uh, Set. It's the estuary of the Canal de Midi. And I've got a, a loop around there that I've just come to love. And it's, on paper, it's not very hard. It's about two meters of altitude. It's flat. Um, but you ride around a laguna behind the town, and it's 60 kilometers. And it's all bike paths and little roads that go through vineyards. There's about eight kilometers of gravel right along the lagoon. And the last 15K or so, you're riding on this beautiful bike path right along the dunes of the Mediterranean. And it's only a two-hour ride, but there's always wind. There's 
always gravel. And it's just in two hours it of flat riding. I don't know another ride that's so complete. Um, and I come back and I don't want to ride another 10 minutes. I'm just, you know, I go, I, you can ride fast. You can really get on top of your gear and, and really push the pace. And when you're done, you're done. You're, you're like happy to be done. And it's a very complete road. And I feel like, yeah, it's, it's, this is my road. Nobody else knows this. It's my little secret, even though it's not. But, you know, when I'm there, there's just not that many people out there. And I really have that to myself in many ways. And it's, and it's, it's stunning. So maybe that's my favorite ride right now. There's a couple of roads I love. One is the road along the edge of the Gorge de l'Ardèche in the south of France. Um, it's a gorge road, so it's mainly along the top of the cliffs, but it's about 35, 40 kilometers, no, 35k maybe, 30k of very winding, scenic road. And I used to work summers in the Ardèche, so I'm, I'm very attached to that region. That's a beautiful road. It's just bending, swooping, a couple of, climbs about maybe k and a half 2k nothing massive they've had tour de france stages that have gone along some of the road before beautiful beautiful road recommend anyone to ride it got a favorite from where i used to live in japan which is called the hakusan superindo which is a forest road we talked about forest roads in a edition of rudo a few few issues back they're mountainous and the hakusan superindo was actually banned for bikes you weren't meant to cycle along but the road be closed every winter and at the end of winter you could get in there as a cyclist after the snow had melted but before the road was open to cars and just enjoy a bit of solitude along there but really I think on reflection my spiritual home my spiritual road is the prosaic sounding B3212 which is the road which crosses Dartmoor it appeared in the Tour of Britain I think two years ago um, it just crosses Dartmoor it's high ground there's a big climb up it on either side but after that, it's a wide open landscape, high moorland, no forest. Just love that road. I cycled it so, so many times. I know it so well. I know that the prevailing wind comes from the southwest. I head out into it. I've got a few climbs uh, early on and then a big climb onto the moor. And then it's a tough ride into the wind. And then you turn around at halfway and you get blown all the way back to my home in Exeter. Some brilliant climbs en route as well. Three or four kilometre climbs, which is pretty big for England. And that road is probably my favourite in the world. It's also, the road purports to be haunted uh, by a, a ghost called the Hairy Hand, which drivers in the 1930s and 1940s, I think it was, reported the steering wheel being grabbed by a pair of disembodied hands and forcing them off the road. In retrospect, probably early cases of drink driving, but it was reported to be haunted as well. So it's, it's a road with a lot of atmosphere. You know, if you get a, a misty day out there, it's it's really eerie. Uh, so B3212, recommend anyone to ride that. But as with Richard's Road in the feature, you know, everyone's got their favourite road, their spiritual road, the road that they most feel at home on, which they most feel expresses their personality as a cyclist. You know, go out and ride that road as much as you can. The next feature in the magazine is called Alison Jackson Has Outdoor Energy. And it's an interview by Curtis Gillespie, a Canadian journalist, who first feature in Rula, hopefully not the last. It's an interview with Alison Jackson at home in, well, the middle of nowhere in Canada. And again, love this feature. It's it's a rider interview rather than a travel feature, but Alison, who won Paris-Roubaix this year and has a huge personality, comes from 
prairie country in Canada. And just to give an idea of how empty her part of Canada is, Curtis writes about this in the in the piece. Canada's three prairie provinces are 15 times bigger than England. And there's about a million people spread over that space. Beautiful portraits taken by Cooper and O'Hara photography. And I felt this piece really expressed one of the biggest personalities in cycling at the moment. Absolutely. You know, I was at Roubaix when she won and she was, it was such an impressive victory. And then she was just so exuberant that you couldn't not love her as a fan. And comes out and hearing this story, uh, her upbringing, the pictures I think are, are tremendous. They show her exuberance, her lust and love for life, all smiles and loving life and living it to the fullest. And I think that's, that's the image that struck me when I, I saw her at Roubaix and I've started following her more since. And I think it comes out in the story. It's tremendous. I think what came across for me from this feature, which you've just expressed as well, James, is just like how much energy she has. And like Curtis says this in the piece, and he, we, we spoke about it as well when we were discussing the feature, that she's one of those people who starts a story and then you just go along with it. The, the tangents and you never know where you're going to end up with with her stories but she's just got so much exuberance and so much energy I think she's a really good advert for for the sport and the kind of personality we we kind of in, engage with so that's Alison Jackson um who's Paris-Roubaix winner and also going to be at Ruler Live this November so grab your tickets for that if you can that'll be an absolutely amazing talk that one the next feature in the magazine is called nothing beside remains uh, it's documents a trip that the cycling journalist tom owen and uh, photographer matt grayson took in sardinia and interesting one this james because obviously sardinia strikes me as being a great cycling destination it's a mediterranean island it's got forests it's got you know middle mountains and beautiful scenery and wonderful seascapes but Tom and Matt's approach to it was somewhat different. They explored a series of abandoned places and old works and quite atmospheric ruins which had been built and left to decay on Sardinia and gave just gave a different understanding of, of the island. What, what was your impression from this feature? Yeah, exactly yours. It was like this amazing juxtaposition. I mean, there are also images of traditional uh, festivals in the villages and some some you know quick picturesque shots, but the most striking shots is we were editing it, and it was these oddball, um, austere, forlorn pictures riding around some old chair lifts. Uh, looks like an old television radar of some kind. The opening picture looks like we could be in like some some ex-Soviet country or something. You don't think you're in Sardinia, and I love it for this reason: the irony and juxtapositions that you find in the landscape, the sheer beauty, and and then just some sort of Sometimes the uncanny uh, contrasts make it really stunning. And I think I think that comes out here. Our image of Sardinia is lush Mediterranean island, uh, Italian. So obviously great food and wine and all this. And we see a whole different side of it here. And kind of like Richard's piece on the road, you know, I, I give them credit for going out and using their bikes to explore places we might not think about exploring you know and that's one of the great things about a bicycle the opening picture which was selected for this one i think that's tom riding up past a broken down satellite dish a huge one it's kind of falling to pieces it's misty as well so it's got a lot of atmosphere and it's kind of poignant in a way and it symbolizes the fact that 
you know, I don't want to get too too profound about this, James, but it symbolises the fact of how transient our time on Earth and humanity itself is, because you know these these giant buildings have been built not that long ago, and they're already crumbling and decaying. And there's a great quote from Tom in the piece. He wrote, "Sardinu is in the grip of a slow tectonic feud, not one between human combatants, between the built and the unbuilt, the natural and the architectural." And it just shows these places which were products of culture slowly having been abandoned slowly being taken back over by nature it reminded me to open my eyes to this in in the future you know i i i'm a sucker for a beautiful landscape in cycling and it's what cycling has always given to me but look beyond the landscapes as well there's um there's culture as well as nature out there absolutely it was a thought-provoking piece uh, and speaking of culture and thought-provoking pieces the next one was my piece on moulin james which we we talked we talked about a bit during the tour de france the reason i wanted this in the magazine is because as we discussed previously in the podcast moulin is not a tourist destination it is a small town lost in the middle of france it is you know in the middle of La France Profonde, which we both love to talk about, that vast area of France, which is the bit in between the interesting places. Farmland around, no real big cities anywhere. It's halfway between north and south, halfway between east and west. Not much happens there. The locals are fairly happy about that. And yet I find it a profound and fascinating place. And I hope you do now, James. Well, how could I not, Ed? Uh, how could I not? We talked about this several months before we actually did it. And at one point, you know, I was thinking about going down there and just photographing it in its, as it is, you know, every day, most days when the tour doesn't come to town, because it was always interesting to see that. In the end, we did it while the tour was in town. There's a mix of just kind of lonely, everyday street shots. And then buildings and and windows and stuff decorated for the tour it was wonderful uh you know i know you were excited about going to this this stage more than any other stage in the tour i love these these smaller stages as well you get to see parts of the country you don't otherwise get to see and i i guess you know we're underlying theme here i guess all of these pieces are pieces where we're we're going out and exploring and looking for new corners maybe in familiar parts of the world like sardinia but we're trying to use the bicycle uh, and cycling to to discover corners of the world that we might not readily go to. That's, I think, one of the strengths of this whole issue. I was reflecting as you were saying those words that when I go traveling, what I like most of all is trying to absorb myself in everyday life where I go. I mean, I, I like big tourist destinations. You know, I've, I've been to plenty. I've been to, you know, the Taj Mahal and the pyramids and the Eiffel Tower and been there and done that. And I, I've enjoyed that as well. But I love just being in a place, sitting down for a cup of coffee and watching the world pass by and feeling like I'm kind of seeing everyday life. I don't I don't care about the, the historic, what kings have lived there or what the important things were or whether there's any, you know, tourist traps there. Just sitting in a little cafe in a quiet town for me, watching everyday life and feeling like I'm just getting one foot in that world is as fascinating to me as the biggest tourist sites in the world. Absolutely. I just came back from Montreal, which is one of the, the great cities for that. I don't pretend to know it intimately, but 
I just like being there and walking around and I have certain neighborhoods that I always gravitate towards, but sometimes I find some other ones too. I love the vibe, you know, like I said, there's this sort of funky melting pot there that you don't find anywhere else. I just like being part of it, in it, breathing the air of these different places around the world. Every year in January, I go to Argentina for the, the races there, San Juan, San Luis before. Always spend a few days in Buenos Aires afterwards. Don't pretend to know it. Don't know if I've even seen all the sights, but I just love walking around. We're back after an unscheduled break in which I've been to buy some new batteries. James, the next feature I want to talk about in the mag is uh, your visit to Andrea Taffy. Now, Andrea Taffy is a former winner of Tour of Flanders, Paris-Roubaix and Il Lombardia. But he's more literally involved in the tourist business these days, isn't he? I was in Tuscany last year with a family holiday. And I remember that Andre Taffy had gone into the tourism business and opened up what I thought was a big Airbnb or something, a bed and breakfast. And and, and it turns out uh, I was half right. He uh, has gone into the tourism business, but it's not a bed and breakfast. It's, uh, you know, what they call in Italy, the agritourism. He bought up a, an old farm in the middle of these olive orchards and I found it and uh, I called him up I said yeah come on down we made up a you know I went over one afternoon and you arrive on this dirt road and you're in this sea of olive trees it's so sumptuous and then you come to the end of the road and you're on this little crest of a just a small hill and you can look down at the farmhouses what was once farmhouses I guess and there's even like a little you know a little mill next to the creek and he has transform them all into a wonderful uh, travel vacation destination. It's, it's in the heart of northern Tuscany. If you're, if you're out visiting Pisa or Lucca or Florence, this is right in that area and it's a wonderful place. And, and I'm not getting any percentage on, on future rentals or anything like that. I just thought it was pretty amazing that this amazing rider, I mean, the guy won Flanders, Roubaix, and Lombardy, and there's not every ride that, that has that kind of makeup. It's pretty rare. It was just a beast of a rider, and just to be now this sort of quiet country farmer, I, th- I found just to be fascinating. So I went down, and he's, he's such a, he's a wonderful guy, real good, gregarious, unpretentious. And, you know, he talk, told me about how he was out on a mountain bike ride one winter and, towards the end of his career, and he went down this road, this gravel road, just looking for a place to ride, right, on the mountain bike, and he found these old farmhouses, this old hamlet. And he said it was in a state of ruin. It was, you know, all this, it was breaking down and, and everything. But he went and found out who the owners were. And they were living up in the north of Italy. And I think he went up there and said, I got to have this land. And they were like, no, we don't know if we want to sell or anything. It's like, well, I, I need this. And I think he just made them a deal that couldn't be refused. He said it wasn't the best time for the marriage. He said there was a little bit of tension there. His wife thought he was throwing away the uh, all the earnings he'd made as a professional. But he, it was just, it was clearly a dream for him. And within about two years, he finished it. He got the work done. He was overseeing the work while he was still a rider. And so he had, he really wanted to set something up to transition into. And that's what he's been doing. And it gives him the chance to meet people. It gives him the chance to bring cyclists in and go for a ride. You can do a travel vacation with Andrea Taffy. He doesn't do like training camps or anything like that. If you're out there traveling with your family and you want a quiet place to come to after a day of tourism... This is a pretty great place. So I thought I thought it was just really uh, fascinating how this you know this beast of a classic rider has now just become this Italian uh, country gentleman, and um, he still rides his bike tons. Sometimes his friends come down like Yoan Museo and they go for rides and stuff, and he's looking good. And what I liked about it, it was pretty understated. There was a touch of cycling in the in the different apartments and rooms and stuff, 
but it wasn't all about Andre Chaffee. There was a Perry tour room. There was a, a Flanders a Roubaix uh, apartment. But it wasn't a museum or, you know, it wasn't a big memorial to him. I actually would have liked to have seen a little bit more of Taffy in there. But that's just kind of who he is. He's just a pretty modest guy. And he found it. He, he was clearly, it was a clear passion for him. This magazine also sees the return of Art Cycle after a very, very short break in the middle of the year. In which you've you talked about an artist who was a cyclist, or was it the other way around? Maurice uh, de Vlamin. He was a, a, a cyclist uh, at the end of the, the 20, uh, 19th century. He even lined up for the second edition of Perry roubaix And he had a what was then considered a professional license, although it was kind of like an independent professional. He did a lot of the six days around all the tracks that were in Paris at the time. And then he got sick and pretty much had to put the bike down. And then he just decided, well, I guess I'll become one of the most revolutionary painters of the, of the, the, the turn of the century. And he was one of the founding fathers of Fauvism, which was really, I mean, just groundbreaking work. It took Impressionism and turned it on its heels with wild you know, faux, what they called wild colors. His faces could be purple, and there was just like, colors were everywhere. A wildly emotional, expressionistic, and, and, and wonderful work. It's some of my favorite uh, stuff. I ended up uh, collaborating with uh, Henri Matisse and, and André Deran and, and others, and um, became just a groundbreaking uh, a painter. We always say cycling is art, but uh, this this whole series is, is allowing us to pursue real crossovers where bicycles or cyclists or or subject matter in art or the artist was perhaps a cyclist and um, that was the case here even though he never really painted a bicycle i love that turn the century atmosphere in france was just so so creative wasn't it it was at the end of the 19th century impressionism came along post imprint like pointillisme and around the turn of the century you know, cubism was on was was about to be developed by picasso and Braque, and fauvism is this kind of wonderful exuberant bright colors it's just regular paintings i guess it's just the colors are so bright aren't they yeah and wild and you know big muscular brush strokes and and uh really wonderful and even though he never painted a bicycle there was a i didn't really even know about this but there was a whole series he was always a cyclist at heart he wrote journals and stuff and he talks about cycling in his painting but the closest he came was a series he did called on the road and he had a whole series of paintings road paintings and and, and I guess you could, some of them, very much from a cyclist perspective, the way you're cresting the, just not a climb, but a little false flat and, you know, things like this and, and wildly moody. Sometimes when, 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 there are, when we're out there pushing ourselves, you know, it's pretty expressionistic experience. So I thought that it was really tremendous. Yeah. Thank you for continuing the art history education of Rulers readers. It's a fascinating series. Um, also in the magazine, we've got Jamie Wilkins sent us a piece about riding up the Peak du Midi du Bigour, which is the little gravel track which turned into a goat road, basically, which goes off the top of the Col de Tourmalet, up and up and up and up, almost to the observatory at the top there. That's a fantastic feature there. I had serious envy of staff writer Rachel Jarry and our contributor Amy Sedgi. Rachel went to Finland for her feature, The Midnight Sun, where she rode Valtteri Bottas's, uh, the F1 driver's event, um, called Finland Gravel. And Amy Sedgi went to Sri Lanka, which just sounds like the most amazing place to go cycling. They've got great gravel there. Apparently, James, which uh, you know makes me makes me think, next time there's a trip to Sri Lanka going on, I might be taking that on myself. Um, we've also got uh, a story about Team Armani, uh, 
who are based in Iten, uh, also the home of running in Kenya. Uh, features about the Technogym village, uh, Victoria Tires. Got Explore features of the Amalfi Coast by you, James, which looks amazing. And Pico Aneto with Jack, ultra cyclist. You can subscribe to Ruler at ruler.cc slash subscribe. Enter the code podcast15 and you'll get a 15% discount. James, thank you for battling jet lag and rising from your sickbed to be with us for today's pod. There'll be more in Ruler conversations next week. Thank you, Ed. Wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This edition of Ruler Conversations was produced by Joseph Perry of Content is Queen. <laughs>